0: We've been looking at some in-depth theology, things that you may have not heard before preached in a church. Romans 9 is some of the, the deepest soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and God's election, and God's calling that you can find in the New Testament. So I invite you this morning to open to Romans 9, 24 through 29. I'll be preaching a sermon entitled, God's Great Mercy in Calling the Elect. God's great mercy in calling the elect. Let me read to you Romans 9. I want to go back to give you the context because Paul's been building this argument. So let's at least go back to 19, 919 here. And the sermon is from 24 to 29, but let's get the context building up to it. Romans nine nineteen. you will say to me then. So here's that objection that Paul got based on his teaching on election. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction, and in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the land thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Here we're looking at God's great mercy and saving both Jews and Gentiles. Both the Pharisee who wants to live according to the law and earn their works and earn their righteousness through those works. And the Gentile who is running from God who is worshiping idols of his own creation. Often I think of my brother and I and our salvation and how God worked in us growing up. My brother was more of the prodigal and he went headlong into the sins that he enjoyed. And I was more of the elder brother. Truly in the parable and in real life, the elder brother. The one who felt like I was very moral, felt like I had a good reputation in the school and in sports. Felt like I could look down at my nose at my brother and his sin. What I came to find out in my 20s, though, is we were both sinners before God. We were both held accountable before God for our sin. And it didn't matter the category of sin, we were both on the road to hell. And yet, God saved me. And we prayed and prayed for my brother, and God saved him. And now we're both in some form of ministry teaching people the Word of God today. When I think of the Jews and the Gentiles, both are sinners. They had a different relationship to God in some way, but they were both sinners in need of a Savior. And that's what Paul has been dealing with here in Romans 9. He started with this big question. Romans 9 through 11 seeks to answer. The big question is, what about the Jews? Paul, you said we can't lose our salvation in Romans 8. But what about the Jews? It seems like, You didn't keep your promise to them. It it seems like so many have rejected Christ that can we really trust you if they are running from Christ? If Christ is not their Savior as well? And so Paul seeks to answer this in Romans 9 through 11. And he said, first of all, that he has a great desire for his people. That was 9, 1 through 5. He has a desire to see them saved. They have these great promises given to them through the covenants. They have these great promises made to their fathers. But he says in verse 6, They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. It's not a physical descendant of Abraham that saves you. Yes, that puts you in a position to know more about God growing up in in a household of faith, we might say. But God chooses whom he will save. It's the believing Israel. It's the true Israel he is talking here. Those Jews who believed upon their Messiah. So he goes through here in 7 through 13 using examples from the Old Testament. He talks about Ishmael and how he was rejected, but Isaac was chosen. He talks about Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then he begins to deal with the objections. And verse 14, what shall we say then? Is this unfair that God chooses some and passes over others? Does this make God unrighteous and unjust? And Paul says, no. God is the one who chooses whom he will have mercy on because he's God. It's about his name. It's about who he is. His attribute of mercy that he chooses to express on those that he chooses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he also hardens a form of judgment upon the sinner, upon the one who is bent against God. They will not come to Christ. And God has not chosen them to come to Christ. So they are hardened like Pharaoh has been hardened. And we left off in 18 Then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. That brings up another objection. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Aren't we just robots then, Paul? That's the objection. Aren't we just robots that were forced to do things by God? And Paul really doesn't answer a direct answer here. He takes it back to who God is. God is the potter, and he can mold the clay. And if he takes the same lump, which is a sinful lump, If he takes a sinful lump of clay and he chooses to save some and make them vessels of mercy and to let the others continue on and be vessels of wrath, who are we to put God in the dock? Who are we to judge God based on what he does with his creation? Because we're all that sinful lump and we're all vessels of wrath if God doesn't save some. So we now come to Paul sort of wrapping this up here, this discussion on the election and Israel, and he brings the, the Gentiles in, in verse 24, and all the way down to 29, he is citing the Old Testament to back up his argument. Paul does what we should do. If we're going to, to make an argument about God, and we're going to try to convince somebody, persuade somebody to come to Christ, we should do so according to the Scriptures. Everything we need for salvation, everything we need for sanctification is in Scripture. It is sufficient. So here's what Paul does. He cites from Hosea and Isaiah to make his case. But first, let's look at just the opening statement in verse 24. He describes there two ways God's mercy is shown in whom he calls. He's sort of wrapping up and drawing together. And he says two ways that God's mercy is shown in whom he calls. 24, even us. He's saying even us. The people he's writing to, Paul and the Romans and the Jews in Rome and the Gentiles in Rome that are saved. Even us. He's talking about the vessels of mercy. He says those reading this letter. The the Christians. Believers in Christ. We are vessels of mercy. Who are these vessels of mercy? Well they're the us. This is not some philosophical discussion. Where we think about what might be. in some invisible group out there. These are real people that God saves. These are real vessels of mercy. That he shapes. That he calls. That he has chosen. Their heart has been changed. Their desires are changed. They are a new creation in Christ. And Paul says that we are the vessels of mercy upon which God has made the riches of his glory known. He just told us that in verse 23, the riches of his glory. He makes that known to all creation through saving people, through choosing sinners. And he prepared this Paul has said beforehand. That's predestination. The the vessels of mercy he prepared beforehand. He, He chose before they came into existence to save them. He made sure to mark them out. He made sure that they would be destined vessels of mercy for glory. Isn't that wonderful? God saves us for his glory and brings us to glory with him. Eternal glory. Eternal life. And he goes on to describe the us. He says, whom he also called. Now, call call has come up many times in Romans already. It's mentioned in the order of salvation that Paul gives in Romans 8.30. If you go back to Romans 8.30 and have a look there, he gives us a nice order of salvation. It doesn't include every single thing that we study in systematic theology, but it's a good overall view of the main points. And he says, Those whom he predestined, those whom he chose to save, those whom he marked out and destined for salvation, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the point I made in that text when I preach it is it's an unbreakable chain. It's the golden chain of redemption. Paul's telling us that because once you find yourself somewhere in there, which is the justified part, if you have faith, he's already said, you will be justified, you are justified, you are declared righteous. Now you can go backwards and forwards in your timeline. You were the ones that God foreloved, that he foreknew. You were the one that God predestined. You were the one that he called in time. You are the one that's justified and you are the one that will be glorified. What is calling then? It's the effectual calling of God upon the heart. It's the divine call upon the heart. It's the change of heart that happens. We sometimes call it regeneration. Being born again that the Holy Spirit does as God divinely summons you. The general call goes out to everybody. Everybody. Many are called, Christ said. That's the general call. The gospel goes out. Tell the gospel to everyone. Even if they don't want to listen to it, you tell it to them anyway. But Jesus said, many are called and few are chosen. Paul uses calling, though, in his letters to speak of the chosen aspect. The people who are elect and predestined will be called in their life. God will change their hearts so they can believe. He gives them a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone, gives them a new heart to believe. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father draws people to Christ. They they hear the gospel. Why do some believe and some do not believe? Because God calls some. He calls some those that are his elect. And so Paul loves this word calling. He tells us in Ephesians to live a life worthy of our calling. We can't just live a life like we used to as unbelievers. But we have to live according to the calling with which God called us. And he explains what that is at the second half of Ephesians. He'll do something similar with Romans 12 and forward. But now he begins to describe who this calling is in verse 24. Not from among Jews only. That's been the topic that he's been discussing up to this point in Romans 9. And he'll continue. He'll come back to the Jews and continue to discuss that in Romans 10 and 11, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The vessels of God's mercy are made up of both Jews and Gentiles. He's been speaking about this relationship that God has to Israel and how God has saved some and will save all Israel eventually. But he says here, the Gentiles are also called by God. They're also saved. They're also vessels of mercy. They are also elect. If God has chosen them. Now, to us today, that's, of course, most of us are Gentiles, maybe all of us in this room. And we think, of course. But this was something new to many of the Jews. This was something new that the Jews would have to hear and chew on and think about as Paul taught on Jew and Gentile relationships in the church. Now, notice though, it doesn't say all Jews and it doesn't say all Gentiles are called. It says, from, among, or literally translated, from, out of. There's this whole mass of humanity. And you can divide them into all the Jews and all the Gentiles. And from each of those groups, God calls some from out of them. Out of all the sinful humanity, God chooses some. All of sinful humanity is against God. Paul said that in Romans 1, 2, and 3. All of sinful humanity is worshiping idols in some sense. Either the idols of their own righteousness. They think it's righteousness. Or the idols that they create in their life. And God chooses to save some. See, today in our modern world, we get too focused on fairness. We get too focused on how that's not right. Everybody should be saved. We don't get to tell God who he is. He gets to tell us who he is. That's what the Bible is all about. Telling us who God is. Telling us the way of salvation. That's why he said, and Paul quotes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He said that to Moses. And he told Moses, tell the people that. And Paul says that's the same thing in the New Testament as well. God chooses. John Calvin said God's election is based on his good pleasure alone. Wherever his will turns itself, there his election exists. So that really summarizes, I think, verse 24, what Paul said up to this point. Now he goes a step further and begins quoting from the Old Testament. He wants to prove to his readers this is nothing new. This isn't some new doctrine that Paul just suddenly developed. He can can do that. He can give new revelation. Christ told him what to say. Christ gave him new information. And he put that in some of his letters. But he says, look, this comes from the Old Testament. This comes from the Bible that you have at the time in the first century. You don't have the whole New Testament yet. You have the Old Testament, maybe a few letters of Paul. This comes from your Bible. And he's saying, get out your Bible and look these up. So he's saying, God's word under the old covenant also spoke of God calling a people to himself. So it should not be a surprise that God is doing such a thing now. It shouldn't be such a surprise to the Roman readers that He is doing such a thing. He is mixing Jew and Gentile in the church now because he is calling from out of both groups. So first of all, I want to see that God displays his mercy in calling some Gentiles in 25 and 26. I want us to see that that God displays his mercy in calling some Gentiles. You say, well, that's obvious. He's already said that. Yes, but again, he's backing it up with the Old Testament not a big deal to us today, but this was huge to the Jews. It would have been difficult to hear in a day when the, when the Pharisees thought that you were chosen for salvation simply because you were a physical descendant of Abraham. Do you remember John the Baptist said, you think you're saved because you're Abraham's children? God can turn these stones into children of Abraham if he chooses to. Physical descendant of Abraham is not guaranteed salvation. It's saving faith that matters. He'll talk about that in Romans 10. It's it's man's responsibility to come to saving faith. But here he's focusing on God's election, God's mercy. And really God's mercy is just another way of saying God's grace, which is another way of saying God's electing love, which is another way of saying predestination. And so we shouldn't really get upset about those words and theological discussion. This gospel this message of Christ, this, this mission that Paul's been given is both to Jews and Gentiles. You remember if you read the book of Acts where he talks about his testimony and you read about how he was told eventually that he is a chosen instrument of mine, Jesus said, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he also went to the synagogue every time he went into a new city. Why? Because those are his people that he loved. He wants them to have saving faith as well. It's like us. We leave home. We go out. Maybe we get saved later in life. We tell a lot of people that aren't our family members about Christ, about the gospel. But hopefully we also pray and and tell our family about that as well, if they're unbelieving. Hopefully we don't forget where we came from, and we still pray for and tell people back home the truth of Christ. So to teach us about God's mercy to those who do not know God in a saving way, Paul cites two passages here from Hosea. First, Hosea 1.10. And you might go ahead and turn there, but I'm going to read as Paul starts it here. And he says also in Hosea. So this is Paul's introduction to the quote. Hosea 1.10. Hosea 1.10. First of the minor prophets. And in Hosea 1.10 you're going to read something very similar, but not exactly the same. I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. Now to understand what's going on here, I need to tell you about the context of Hosea. Because you're going to see, this is speaking of Israel. He's not speaking of Gentiles directly here in Hosea 1, or Hosea 2, or the book of Hosea. So to understand that, we need to know the context. What's happening with Hosea in his time? But what's happening is God has called him to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel had been divided in those days. Read First and Second Kings, you learn about that. It had been divided. Basically, a civil war had divided the nation. There's the north and the south. The north is called the kingdom of Israel, or just the ten tribes. Sometimes we speak of the ten tribes of Israel. Sometimes it's called Ephraim because that was the dominant tribe in the north. And the south is just simply called the kingdom of Judah. So Hosea is called to be a prophet, but also to live out his prophecy in a sense. Hosea is told to choose a woman of harlotry, a prostitute named Gomer. That's who he chooses, and he marries her. He's told to marry her by God, and God says have children with her. And this is to mirror the kindness of God to idolatrous Israel. Even though Israel has gone into their prostitution of idolatry, harlotry, God calls them back and he restores them. Which is the book of Hosea and what that's about. Speaking to the northern ten tribes. This really mirrors the kindness of God to idolatrous Israel. How many times did Israel rebel and reject God? And how many times did God bring them back? And he still promises to save them in the future. Which we'll come to in Romans 11. So Hosea and Gomer. They do have children. And God gives each child the name. And the name that he gives. That God tells Hosea to name his children. Represents something about Israel. Now for one of the children. The son. God tells him. Tells Hosea. Name your son Lo-Ami. Lo-Ami. Which is Hebrew for not my people. Because God said you are not my people. And I'm not your God. Then Gomer runs away and she has all these other lovers. And Hosea goes and he brings her back. He he pays for her. He buys her back from this man so that she will come back and live in his home. And he tells her, you'll stay with me now. And you'll not wander and you'll not go off into other places. Israel wandered off like lost sheep. And God comes to rescue them out of their sin. But before God will call to himself a people, he restores them. He restores them, and he even before that punishes them. There's a punishment that's coming upon Israel. That's also in Hosea. So now look here at Hosea 2. I said Hosea 1:10, but that's coming up. Hosea 2:21. Hosea 2:21 is the 2:23 is the first quote, and then Hosea 1:10 is verse 26. So let's start in Hosea 2:21, and it will be in that day. There's a day in the future. God says that I will answer, declares Yahweh. I will answer the heavens and they will answer the earth. And the earth will answer the grain and the new wine and the oil. And and they will answer Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. That was one of the other names of Hosea's children. And it's also a place in Israel. And it means God sows. God, God sows the land, sows the seed in the land. So he's saying there's a future restoration coming. And he says in verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. He's going to put Israel in the land and establish them. And I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. They didn't earn it. They weren't righteous. They didn't somehow come to God and say, God, you owe us. We are so perfect. We are so righteous. No, God says they did not obtain compassion, but I will give them compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people. Stop right there. You think, oh, they're not his people. Aren't, aren't, isn't Israel God's people? Aren't always Israel God's people in the Old Testament? No, they're not. And since the that, they've run from God. They've worshipped idols. Yes, he made a covenant with Abraham. Yes, the nation is his covenant nation. But in this case here, he uses this name to describe them to say, You're not my people because you've turned away from me. How can you claim me as your God, as your husband, in a sense, if we use the analogy of Hosea and Gomer? How can you say that when you've turned from me? But he says, I will restore you. I will make your land great. The heavens will answer what I have to tell them. The earth will answer. Everything will get in line for this restoration. And I will have compassion on her who who has not obtained compassion. I will say To those who are not my people, you are my people. And look at this. This is even more amazing. They will say, you are my God. This is a picture of regeneration. This is a picture of salvation. God goes to them. They did not call themselves God's people. He calls them that. He changes their heart. Then they can say to him, you are our God. You are my God. God is going to restore Israel one day. In that day, as he started this section here. And 221, in that day, and even though they had turned away from him and worshiped other gods and had no saving relationship with him, he brings them back to the land. And he will do this in the future again and restore them to himself. These are people who are running headlong into their sin, just like us. Just like us Gentiles. We were running headlong into our sin and we were not God's people. We weren't even God's people covenantally, which they were. We certainly weren't worshiping God, the true God, the right way in our unbelief. And yet God comes and he says, you're mine, come here. And we come and we don't resist. God changes our heart so we don't even want to resist. What mercy is this, that we're not his people but he will make them his people. See, they were relying on this this covenant, this choosing of the nation and yet individually in their hearts. They were not seeking God. They were not worshiping God. They were worshiping idols. And so God is going to bring the first challenge on them as the Assyrians who will come and wipe out the northern ten tribes. And Hosea is warning them that this is coming to happen. But the great thing about the prophets, I don't know if you notice this when you read the prophets, that God always mixes this mercy and grace of restoration Before you read too long in Isaiah or Hosea or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, there's this reminder of restoration. There's this reminder that God is going to do what is impossible for us to do. Otherwise, I think we'd really get annoyed at reading all this judgment, judgment, judgment. But we need to hear it too, don't we? But God is gracious, even in how he has ordered scripture and gives us these little reminders throughout the prophets. That are preaching judgment. That he will restore. He will save. Now let's go back to Hosea 1. Now Paul quotes Hosea 1.10. In Romans 9.26. It shall be in that place. Where we said to them. You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Sons of the living God. Those who are born again. That's what a son of the living God is. Those who are regenerate. Those who are brought into the family. They're, They're not Truly his family in the sense that they're saved, but they will be. In fact, in Romans 8.14, hold your spot in Hosea and go back and see in Romans 8 how Paul describes this adoption process. In Romans 8.14 and 15, he describes what adoption means. And he uses similar language, almost exact language in Romans 8.14. For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, These are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. These are the sons of God, those who have faith, those who are saved by God, those who have trusted in God for salvation. So God is saying, through Hosea, that these rebellious Israelites will be saved one day in the future and be born again and have God as their father. That's Hosea's message. These texts speak of Israel being restored. So what is Paul doing using them to talk about Gentiles? What are you doing, Paul? You're supposed to be first telling us about the Gentiles and then about Israel in the next section, Romans 9, 27-29, Why is he using texts that are clearly about Israel being restored? He's not saying that the church is now Israel. That would not make sense because in verse 27 of chapter 9 in Romans, he's going to use the word Israel and he's talking about ethnic Israel. Now Paul's using these texts to support how God calls Gentiles. How God does it. Not that he's going to do it. Think of all the verses in the Old Testament. If he wanted to cite a verse that said God is going to save Gentiles, there are plenty of them. He doesn't have to go to Hosea to find one that doesn't speak of Gentiles. He could go to Isaiah 49.6. That's one of the most famous ones. He says, this is God speaking, this is God the Father speaking to the suffering servant, the Son of God. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Talking to the The Messiah who's going to come. He's saying, it's almost too small a thing just to save some of Israel. Why not save the Gentiles? I will also make you a light of the nations. So that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So if Paul just wanted to make a statement about how God's going to save the Gentiles, that's a great verse to do it, Paul. No, he's not just looking for an Old Testament quote about Gentiles being saved by God. The apostle here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is looking for verses that show us God's mercy to a people who are not his people. To a people who are called not my people. I mean, how much better can you get than that verse? You're not my people? I'm going to make you my people. Oh, that's exactly how he does it in the New Testament as well. That's what Paul's looking for. He chooses from the verses in Hosea that he cited because they contrast the mercy of God with the rebellion of the people. Israel was rebellious. Israel was worshiping other gods. God's going to bring a punishment on the nation, but he's also going to save them in the future. He's going to restore them. They were not his people, and they will be his people. Gentiles in the New Testament were not his people, and yet we are his people when he saves us, when he crafts from that lump of clay a vessel of mercy. It's about God's mercy. That's why Paul has cited this verse. That's why he cited all the verses so far in Romans 9. He's telling us about God. He's not looking at it from man's perspective. He'll do that more often in Romans 10. Here, this is from God. God's perspective. Look at Romans 9, 25. Look at how he introduces it again. He says, also in Hosea. What do you mean also in Hosea? Paul, you haven't quoted a verse to show us anything about the Gentiles, anywhere close to this. No, but what do he say in verse 24? From among the Jews and also from among the Gentiles. Paul said it. And also Hosea said something like that. God's going to save people who are not his people and call them his people. Just that little word also points to this fact that Paul's not saying in the book of Hosea, that God is speaking of Gentiles. He's speaking of Israel and Hosea. Paul's not twisting the context of Hosea. He's saying, like God did then, God is doing now. There's an analogy here. And Paul says, it should be no surprise that God would show mercy to Gentiles and save some of them because Hosea also says something like this about God in the Old Testament. Lo, me, you're not my people. Warren Weersby said, Paul cited Hosea to prove that this new people being called would be God's people and sons of the living God. If loa me can be applied to idolatrous Israel, that you're not my people, can it be applied to idolatrous Gentiles like us? That's what Paul is saying. This is the same way Peter does in 1 Peter 2:10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the connecting principle, mercy. It's about mercy. It's not about God trying to make Israel the church and the church Israel and vice versa. This is about God. It's about God's mercy. The attribute, the perfection of his mercy and grace. Gentiles, you're not part of the old covenant promises. You couldn't claim that. Turn to Ephesians 2.11. Now we know looking back we can claim that. But I want you to see it from the first century perspective. Ephesians 2.11, look how Paul says it. He wants the Ephesians, all Gentiles mostly, to praise God for their salvation. And he says in 2.11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And then he reminds us that circumcision, which is performed by the flesh, by human hands. So in Ephesians, he's saying, look, God saved you? But it wasn't because you were part of the covenant which said to circumcise and mark your descendants that he gave to Abraham and then later to Moses. Continuing on there in verse 12 of Ephesians 2, remember that you were at that time without Christ. You were Christless. You did not have a Messiah. A Gentile would not just have a Messiah. The Jews did. They had one in the Bible that was promised to come from their line. And he goes on to say alienated From the citizenship of Israel. Excluded. Out of the citizenship of Israel. You, Gentile, could not claim to be a citizen of the nation Israel. Not the way that God had designed it. He goes on as well, doesn't he? Talking about being hopeless. You were hopeless. You didn't have these covenants. You were covenantless. You didn't have these covenants that God had given to Abraham and his descendants. We know that they apply to the believer, the Gentile. We know that under the new covenant. But you would not automatically have known that without God revealing that to us. You were also without God in the world. Godless. But now. But now. Do you see that in verse 13? But now in Christ Jesus... You who formerly were far off. have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's Christ that's brought you near. You couldn't approach God as a Gentile and say, well, God, you promised all these things under the covenants with my fathers. It wouldn't work as a Gentile. Yes, you could go back and cite the new covenant. You could go back and cite Isaiah. But work with me here. You could not go, as Paul is doing in Romans 2, saying, God, you owe me because I'm a descendant of Abraham you were alienated. You had no hope. You had no God. You had no Christ. You had no covenant. And yet, God saved you. Did you have a PhD in all the covenants of the Bible when God saved you? Did you even know your Bible that well when God saved you? Let's look now at the Jews. So that's the Gentiles. God displays his mercy in, in calling some of the Gentiles. Not all of them, the ones that he chooses. Secondly, God displays his mercy in calling a remnant of Israel a remnant of Israel. Paul speaks to the choice of God to make vessels of mercy from out of the Jewish people, Israel. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah now. He quotes from the book of Isaiah. First, Isaiah 10, 22. So go to Isaiah 10, 22 and 23 here because he's going to use those two verses in Romans 9, 27 and 28. In verse 27 of Romans 9, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. That's ethnic Israel. Now he's talking about the people, the ethnic Israel, the Jews. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. The sand of the sea. This is Isaiah 10, 22. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea. This is a reference back to Abraham. The covenant made with him. Was that his descendants would be like the stars of the heaven, like the sands of the seashore. You cannot count them. There, there's so many, millions upon millions. You cannot count all the descendants you will have, Abraham. So Isaiah is pointing back to that. Isn't that interesting? Paul points back to Isaiah, and Isaiah's pointing back to Genesis, proof of one author, God, of the whole Bible. So Paul points to Isaiah, and Isaiah is referencing part of the Abrahamic covenant. And they're going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. God is going to make the nation great. His physical descendants, even to this day, are going to be in the millions of millions. There'll be so many Israelites in the land and the whole world too, that it'll be difficult to count them. But out of all those, out of all those millions and millions over the history since Abraham, it is the remnant, Isaiah says, that will be saved. It's the remnant. Remnant means what remains. It's a small group out of the whole. It's spiritually speaking, those who are chosen by God to be saved here. And notice it's the remnant, not just a remnant. It's not just something God kind of left over and decided not to punish. No, it's the remnant, specifically definite article here, the ones chosen by God. A small portion out of the whole group that God decided to put his mercy on, to show his grace. Most Jewish people are going to face the judgment of God. Just like most Gentiles will be judged for their sin. Remember Jesus said the way is narrow. The gate is narrow. Look at Isaiah 10 and go back to verse 20. Let's get the context. Now it will be in that day. Again, we hear this that day, a future day. A future day of of salvation, of restoration. In that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. They won't go to other nations to seek help, but they will rely truly, they will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. They're going to seek God. They're going to seek God for help. They're going to seek God for restoration, not help from other, not help from mankind, not help from powerful nations and rulers and kings. But verse 21, a remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob To the mighty God. He's a mighty God. So when will this happen? When when is this remnant of believing Jews going to come into existence? Well, it's already happening in Paul's day. He says that. Hold your spot in Isaiah and go back to Romans. Let's go now to Romans 11.5. You've heard me quote this many times. Romans 11.5 and also 7. And we see here got a different Bible here today, so it's taking me longer to flip. Romans 11.5, we see what Paul has to say about this. In this way, then, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, has also come to be. There's a remnant right there in Paul's day. There's a remnant right now in our day. There's a remnant of believing Jews. They're in the church. They're in in the church age, with the church, with the Gentiles, worshiping God. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking has it not obtained, but the chosen obtained it. The the remnant, the chosen of God obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So there's a hardening upon most of Israel, but there's a remnant right now that is saved. Also, though, in the future, there's going to be a remnant. Skip down to 11.25. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery. There's a lot of confusion about this. There still is today. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until... That's the end. Until there's a time marker here. Until something happens. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And, so after that has happened. After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Every chosen elect person that's a Gentile has been saved. At that point, all Israel will be saved. So that's speaking of the future. It's the future for Paul. It's still the future for us. It's this time that Jesus refers to as a great tribulation. Jesus says in Matthew twenty four twenty one. For then there will be a great tribulation. Such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. It's not happened before Jesus' time. And then he says, nor ever will. When Christ touches down on the earth to reign, the Jews will be saved. That are existing, that are living at that time. They will have faith in him. That's what it means, all Israel will be saved. The Jews will look upon him, whom they have pierced, and weep bitterly. They will recognize their Messiah. All Israel at that time will be saved. When we come there, I want to show you throughout church history how most of believers have held that view. That all believing Israel, all Israel will believe, I should say, at that time and be saved. So it's going to happen in the future. Now, Isaiah speaks of that future. If you just look at the rest of Isaiah 10, 22, Isaiah 10, 22, he speaks of it for. Though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will remain within them. They will return. A destructive end is decreed. This is a complete end. It's decreed by God. A complete end, he says, overflowing with righteousness. This is God bringing his judgment, his wrath, the great tribulation. It comes upon the whole world, but it also comes upon Israel. And verse 23, for a complete destruction. That's what Paul quotes here. In Romans 9.28. For a complete destruction. It's complete. Going back to what, how, the way Paul quotes it in 9.28. For the Lord will execute his word on the land. Thoroughly and quickly. Thoroughly. Complete. It will be complete. He will not leave one person out. Unless they're saved by Christ. He will execute all the unbelievers. Gentile or Jew. He will judge them. He will execute them in the tribulation. They will physically lose their life. But all the remaining Jews are the ones who are chosen. They will be saved. That's what he goes on to back up here. One that is decreed, Lord Yahweh of hosts will do in the midst of the whole land. In the Old Testament context, the land is Israel. There's arguments whether Paul has in mind the whole earth or just the land. The LSB translates it land to stick with the original. It can be translated either way. But I think because the tribulation is coming on the whole earth, it doesn't matter how we take it. If we take it as Israel, yes. If we take it as the whole earth, yes. There's going to be judgment upon the land and the earth. It's going to happen thoroughly, completely. And it's also going to be quickly. It will be quickly. It will be sudden. It will be fast. And the idea with that word in Greek is it will be cut off. Something larger will be cut down to size And Israel then enters into salvation, trimmed down and cut down with only a remnant left. Now to bring this point home, he quotes one more verse from Isaiah in Romans 9, 29. This is from Isaiah 1, 9. Isaiah 1, 9. You can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah is a book about Israel's judgment. But it's also a great book about hope and salvation. Verse 29, here's how Paul quotes it. Just as Isaiah foretold, Isaiah said this would happen. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. First of all, Lord of Sabaoth. Yahweh of hosts. Literally, the Yahweh of hosts. The covenant name of God. And he has a host. A host of angelic armies. This huge angelic armies. If you take it literal, which I do in Revelation, multitudes of multitudes. We're talking at least a billion. A billion. Angels. And when people saw one angel in the Bible, what did they do? They fell, fell down. They feared for their life. They were scared. They thought they were about to die. One angel. They weren't these cute little babies with wings. And were these, you know, sweet little people that they buy to put on their Christmas tree? These were mighty, terrifying angels. Not terrifying because of something gross or evil, but they were terrifying because the glory of God was reflected in them. And when he calls upon the Lord of Sabaoth, he has that idea in mind. And Paul as well, as he quotes this in the New Testament. Now what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? They were completely wiped out for their sin. Completely wiped out. You could not go after God wiped out those cities and find any bones. You could not go and find any stones, any bricks. You can't today. You can find salt. Because fire and brimstone was the judgment with which he judged those two cities for their sin, for their wickedness, for their evil. And that was only two angels that went in. And God, through those angels, judged that city. Because you'll remember, one of the angels tells Lot, I cannot do anything until you leave. He's going to be the means by which God judges the city. Two angels. Now you have Lord Yahweh of all the angelic armies. And they're coming back, all of them. Jesus said he's coming back with his holy angels. To judge. That's his army. He's coming back to judge the whole earth. And Paul brings this up to say. If God had not chosen a remnant of Israel. They would have all been like Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have all been destroyed. And he would have been perfectly righteous to do so. Sinners deserve judgment. We can't forget that. And God would have been right to do that. But he has preserved a remnant. This powerful Yahweh of hosts has chosen to save a remnant out of all of Israel. Had he not chosen to be merciful, he was within his right to do so. But also realize, if he hadn't done it, no one would be saved. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. He chose to do it. He was merciful. He was good. He was gracious to save some. No one would be saved because we can't be saved on our own merits. It takes God doing it for us to be saved. The only reason there even is a remnant is because of God's great mercy. That's what Paul is getting at here. Sometimes we can get lost in these quotes and and miss the main theme here, which is God's mercy displayed to Gentiles. God's mercy displayed to Jews. It's all about God's mercy. While you're in Isaiah, just go forward real quick to Isaiah 19, 19, 1924. Again, something about that day. In that day, Isaiah 1924, in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria And a blessing in the midst of the earth. Clearly, this is the future. This has not happened yet. There's three parties and they work together. Okay, if you know anything about today and what's happening in Israel and what's happened in Israel the last 2,000 years and what's going to happen maybe in the next few years until Christ returns, they're not three parties working together, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and is Syria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Believing Israel is existing alongside of Egypt and Assyria, which are Gentiles. All three serving the Lord, glorifying the Lord. Not just the people from that nation, because there are some believers amongst those today, but the nation itself. And there's even going to be a highway called holiness running through all of those nations, connecting them together. What grace is that? People who hated God and he goes and he saves them. Whether it was Israel or whether it was us Gentiles, God's mercy is on display. That's what it means to say sola gratia, by grace alone. The reformers preached by grace alone. Why? Because there's no other way to be saved. If it wasn't for God, there wouldn't even be a remnant, Isaiah says. And if God didn't call not my people, my people, no one would be saved, including Gentiles. God's glory is at stake, and he will do what he has chosen to do. We got to give praise to him. We got to thank him for that. We shouldn't be arguing in our mind about how that's not fair, and that's not righteous, and that's not about free will of man. Yeah, there's a will we're supposed to desire to come to Christ, and he's going to call us to do that in Romans 10. But first, God is merciful. God is gracious, and without that mercy and grace, we would be lost forever. Maybe you're here today, and and you're thinking, you are lost. You're not saved. You haven't trusted in Christ. And you've heard this message delivered to believers, and you think, where am I in all of this? Well, you're the Gentile. You're the not my people. You're the rebellious Israel and Hosea who's called not my people. You're the one who is running from God by analogy to these texts. You are running from God. Come to Christ. Have all of these blessings applied to you. Don't sit there and debate whether you're elect or not. You know, you will know if you're elect when you come to Christ. Because that's how the elect are known. They have saving faith in the Messiah. So let's thank the Lord this morning for what he's revealed to us and how he's working in our hearts. Lord, we do thank you for this text of Scripture It can challenge us at times to to study the Old Testament context and the New Testament, Lord. But we pray that you would work in our hearts. That we would have more gratefulness towards you. That we would not think it was anything in us that saved us. We would not be prideful. Thank you for humbling us. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you that there's a new covenant people. And there's your people Israel and your saving out of Israel, and you are saving out of the Gentiles, Lord. We are so thankful, Lord, for that. Let us worship you as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, showing our gratefulness, showing our love, and turning once again from our sinful ways. We trust in Christ alone. Amen.